From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me to talk about a new robotic tool for brain surgery is Dr. G. Dumani Reddy. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery and the director of adult functional neurosurgery at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reddy. Thanks for having me, Amber. So the tool we're going to talk about is um, called the ROSA Brain Robot, ROSA standing for Robotic Surgical Assistant. But before I ask you about what it does, let's review a little about epilepsy. How common is this neurological disease? Yes, yeah, so the best evidence we have for that comes from the Center for Disease Control, the CDC. Uh, you know, every few years, they send out a national health survey to assess how many people in the United States have epilepsy. And from that recent data in 2015, we know that approximately 1.2% of the population has it. So in the United States, that's about 3,500,000 people. And that's about 3 million adults and 500,000 children that we know have it in the U.S. So in a state like New York, it's about 200,000 adults and 25,000 children. Wow. Well, now what are the symptoms of epilepsy? Right. So, you know, it's very varied. So I, I, I would say that most people probably have some uh, conception of what an epileptic patient looks like when they're having a seizure. I know it's an, it's an immediate kind of uh, a lot, particularly in TV shows and movies when patients have seizures, you kind of see them fall to the ground and shaking. Well, that turns out to be a very specific type of seizure called a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So there's two categories of seizures. One is generalized, which means it affects your entire brain and really affects every aspect of it. And you really can't do anything while you're having a seizure like that. The other type is called a partial seizure or focal seizure. And in those seizures, you can lose consciousness sometimes. When that happens, we call it a, a complex partial seizure. But if you don't lose consciousness, we call it a simple partial seizure. And in those situations, when you have just a partial seizure, it might just be one part of your body that's acting abnormally. Maybe your arm starts to shake or your or your leg starts to shake, or you feel some tingling in your arms or tingling in your legs, and then, you know, it comes and goes periodically. It sounds like different types of seizures, but epilepsy means that you have seizures of some sort? Exactly. So the diagnosis of epilepsy means that you've had basically more than two unprovoked seizures in greater than a 24-hour period. But the type of seizures you can have can be very varied. You can have a simple seizure, which is kind of what we describe, where it just affects one part of your body, and or you can have a, a generalized seizure that you know, affects the entire body. And then you can have some seizures that start out as simple or focal uh, and then progress to be generalized. We call that uh, seizure with secondary generalization. Is this something that uh, people are born with? Because you, you mentioned there's children that have epilepsy. Are they born with the disease or is this something that might develop later in life? Well, it's a little bit of both. So that's true is that, uh, you know, the, Children can be born with the disease. We know there are some genetic, genetic conditions that lead to it. One of the symptoms that, syndromes that we, we know of is something called Dravet syndrome. Uh, and it's basically caused by an, a mutated sodium channel. So sodium is very important in setting the excitability levels of your cells. So in patients who have this mutated channel, they tend to be hyper-excitable. Their cells and their brains tend to be hyper-excitable and predisposes them to the seizures. That being said, on the other side of the coin, we know that if you've had a prior traumatic brain insult, for example, like if you had Trump, uh, you were in a car accident or had some sort of injury to your head, you have a 50% chance of developing seizures afterwards. So we know that you can develop seizures secondary to an event that happened, and it's not uncommon after a traumatic brain injury or a stroke or some sort of hemorrhage in your brain that you develop seizures following that. One of the more common reasons that we see as surgeons is 
patients who have tumors in their brains, they can develop seizures secondary to their tumors. Now, is epilepsy usually treatable with medication? For the most part, yes. Actually, we would. Uh, the best studies we have suggest that about approximately seventy percent of patients can be treated uh, with medications, meaning that their seizures stop once you're on a medication. Your, your seizures are controlled. You don't have any. That being said, we know that if one medication doesn't work, usually the addition of more than two is very ineffective. So once you get to about two, three medications, adding any more is usually unlikely to help. So when might surgery become a recommendation for someone? Right, so surgery fills in that other 30%. So, you know, you, you know, 70% is a great number, but 30% of, you know, 3 million people in the United States or 200,000 people in the state of New York is still a lot. That's basically 60,000 people who have persistent seizures despite medications. And for those patients is where surgery becomes uh, an, uh, an option. And also in some patients who take medication, they have side effects from the medications they can't tolerate. Most notably, some some epilepsy medications can make you drowsy or sleepy, and some patients can't tolerate it. Uh, and in those patients, surgery is also an option. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neurosurgeon Dr. G. Dumani Reddy, and we're talking about the new Rosa Brain Robot. So let's talk about the surgical options for epilepsy. How long has surgery been an option? When, when were the first surgeries done for epilepsy? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, you know, there's been some sort of documentation for a long time. Uh, you know, we first have the documentation that epilepsy might be secondary to second, uh, or seizures themselves might be secondary to a disease of the brain from Hippocrates, founders of medicine, who kind of first led us away from the idea that these people were just possessed, they actually might have a disease in the brain that we could treat. When we first started treating surgically, surgically uh, kind of consistently, it was at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, basically, it was done in Queen Square in London. There was a young neurosurgeon, 29 years old, named Dr. Victor Horsley, who had a patient that was run over uh, by a cab when he was a baby. And uh, approximately five years later, he started developing horrible seizures. And they were partial seizures, the seizures we were talked about. They were only affecting kind of one arm. And so, uh, you know, he was working with a, a neurologist colleague at the time named Dr. Jackson, who's also very prominent in our field. And they had the idea that maybe there was something wrong with the brain that they could treat. And so Dr. Horsley took the patient back and he opened up the, the skull and he found that there was a scar uh, near the area of the brain that controls the, the movement. Uh, and so it made sense that if that area of the brain was hyperexcitable, secondary to that scar, that potentially that could be leading to seizures. So he took it out, uh, removed the scar, and the patient was seizure-free. And that, uh, you know, that kind of led the way for, for the rest of us there. So is, is that the goal or the intent of the surgery to remove uh, scar tissue or? Yeah. So uh, our goal in, in surgical treatment of epilepsy is to, to get them seizure free. And sometimes for us, it, it's helpful if we can see on an MRI that there's a portion of the brain that is abnormal. The more modern treatment of though, it doesn't necessarily require it to be abnormal or to look abnormal on an MRI. It's just that if we can identify it as functionally abnormal, we can still resect it. Usually these areas of brain that are just functioning abnormal, all they do is cause seizures. They don't necessarily are involved in any of this or aspect of the brain function. And in that case, then it's really not a help for the patient to have it in place. And we just go and kind of take it out. Or nowadays we can, you know, put a fiber optic probe and laserly ablate it with a laser. So you don't need such a big surgery. But in either sense, we try to basically try to, to remove it, get it all out of the, out of the, the functioning brain. So can you describe how the ROSA brain robot works? How do you use that? 
Right. So it kind of fits into the second uh, the aspect that we were talking about, where these patients who present don't have something structurally abnormal in their brain, but we can kind of localize where their seizures are coming from to a specific area of the brain. When that happens, what we can do is we can actually put probes in, electrodes, which are leads that have electrical contacts with them. And then we put them in the brain in the locations that we think the seizures are coming from. We try to identify exactly where that seizure is coming from. And in that case, even if the patient has a normal looking brain on an MRI, but we can identify using those probes where those seizures are originating from, we can basically protect that area of that brain or ablate that area of the brain. And that's where really the ROSA comes in, is that uh, the more of these probes you can put in, the more accurate you can get in the location of the seizure foci. And so the ROSA robot helps us put in very accurately you know, multiple probes in very kind of delicate locations of the brain without causing injury. Is it a safe procedure, or, or what are the risks? I should say. Yeah, I wish I could tell. You, I wish I could say it was a hundred percent safe. But unfortunately, no, no surgery is. There's always a risk of infection. There's a risk of bleeding. There's a risk of damage to the surrounding structure. Most notably, a portion of the brain that's important for speech or for movement or for sensation. The benefit of the Rosa. I mean, that was the the risks before we had the robot. The benefit of the robot is that because we can so accurately place these leads where we want them to be placed, all these risks are lower. We can avoid vessels we see on imaging, and we know that if we avoid vessels, the risk of the bleeding is lower. We can avoid important structures of the brain that we see on imaging. That leads to less likelihood of a postoperative deficit. But there are still risks, unfortunately. So if you use the ROSA brain robot, does that alleviate opening up, doing like a craniotomy where you open up uh, the skull? So in one sense it does, because before we had the robot, before we could place these uh, electrodes that kind of just go through the skull into the brain, what we used to have to do is place kind of larger grids. We'd have to open up the skull, place a large grid, which is laid on the surface of the brain. And that would, uh, you know, require a big surgery. And sometimes those patients, when we did that, we couldn't find a foci for their seizures. And then we would have to kind of take off the grid, but we couldn't do any surgery to resect it. So they end up having a craniotomy for, you know, for not, and no essential treatment for their for their seizures. With the Rosa robot, we can now kind of place depth electrodes, uh, which doesn't require that large craniotomy. It's just kind of small burr holes in the skull to place these electrodes. Truth be told, you know, we were doing that before uh, we actually had the robot. We would just kind of put these electrodes in manually. We'd kind of calculate the trajectories by hand, and we had a, a frame that would give us numbers on where to put the um, each electrode, you know, it would took a lot longer because we had to physically adjust uh, these positions for each electrode, and there was a lot more room for error because we were you know, calculating each individual tract individually by hand. It's a lot of room for kind of arithmetic error that, that could lead to a malplaced electrode. But with the Rosa robot, it's a it's a, a lot easier. Those trajectories are calculated by the robot. The robot goes exactly where you need it to go, and then you just kind of drill the hole and put the electrode in. So it seems like there's more room for precision with the robot. Well, yes. tell me from a patient's point of view, how do you instruct someone to prepare for this operation? Right. So the important thing is that, uh, you know, they kind of understand that the, this first surgery that we do with the robot is basically to help us characterize where the seizure foci are coming from. So it's not a surgery they should expect afterwards that, you know, they'll have a reduction in their seizure frequency. Uh, it's really just to help us 
find where that seizure foci is originating from. And in that sense, you know, this surgery, this first surgery doesn't require a lot in the operating room. You still come in, we still put you to sleep, and then we drill some holes in your skull, and then when you wake up, you have your head wrapped, and then outside of the wrap comes, has, you have this collection of wires, and each of these wires connects to an individual electrode in your brain. And then after that, you go to the, uh, you go to the EMU, which is our epilepsy monitoring unit, where you stay for a period of time while we wait for you to have seizures. We want you to have these seizures while your electrodes are in place so we can kind of closely identify where they're coming from. And once you've had a few kind of characteristic seizures for you, if we can identify the location, then we take the electrodes out. And then the next surgery is whether we can do either a resective surgery or an ablative surgery if possible, where we find the area that was kind of hyperactive on the electrodes and, and ablate it or take it out. So when you say resect, that means remove the tissue? Yeah, sometimes it's easier if it's a large area, it's easier to remove rather than trying to ablate with fiber optic probe. If it's a small area that's very localized, we can, we can just ablate it with a fiber optic probe. Wow. What is recovery like for patients and how soon after this do they see a difference? Right. So it's recovery from the, uh, the actual procedure with the placing the depth electrodes with the probes, it doesn't take that long. Usually you're kind of back to normal by the next day. But you're in the hospital just kind of getting your seizures recorded. And once we remove the electrodes, we typically send our patients home the next day. So they'll remove the electrodes at bedside. They don't have to go back to the operating room for that. And then we send them home the next day. And then when they come back for their procedure, if it's a laser ablation procedure, a procedure where we just put the fiber octa probe, typically it's just an overnight stay and you can go home the next day. If it's a procedure where we actually have to do a craniotomy and open up the skull to resect a larger area, you used to stay in the hospital about two to three days, basically until you're back on your feet and can uh, can manage to take care of yourself at home. Oh. Well, this has been very interesting. I thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you to Dr. Pleasure. T. Dumani Reddy. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery and the director of adult functional neurosurgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.